0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Here's The Plan.
1: We've been working on this series for a year and we're so excited to finally be able to share it with you and especially to introduce you to our very first guest who we both think is going to blow your mind. But before we do that, we thought we'd quickly introduce ourselves and give you a bit of context as to what this podcast will be about and who we are and why we're doing this. I'm Bella Lack, and I began campaigning when I was about 11, 12. I started how you would imagine a stereotypical activist protesting. And then in 2019, I was making a documentary and I stumbled across this word everyone was throwing about, uh, which is storytelling. And I realized how important it is to be sharing solutions and to help people envision a different future that's better, that people want to move towards.
0: I'm James Miller, I'm 21. I've been an environmental activist since I was about 13 and I started off making documentaries and short films and sharing them online and then moved a little bit more towards political advocacy and campaigning and in that time I've been everywhere from on top of park benches in London right the way through to inside 10 Downing streets trying to get the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis higher up the political agenda. We started this podcast because, well, we're in a bit of a mess when it comes to our planet and the future that our generation faces right now, as I'm sure all of you listeners will know, because we hear about it every single day on social media. We know that it's getting worse and worse every year, and it's going to get worse and worse into the future unless we do something very radical very quickly. And that can be a lot, and it's not necessarily a very helpful thing to hear unless you know what you can do to help.
1: So we thought we'd take the same approach that most people take whenever something bad happens. If you lose your job or you're revising for an exam, what's the first thing you do? You make a plan. And we think a plan is really important for several reasons. Firstly, it really crystallizes what seems like this huge overwhelming problem into something smaller, something more discreet and manageable. And secondly, Something that we didn't really realise until we look back in hindsight, but it helps you to see the bigger picture, how everything fits together and the linkages between all the different solutions.
0: So that's what we're doing with this series. We've identified 10 critical steps that we need to take to save ourselves. And for each of those steps, we're interviewing one of the most important people out there who's already working on it to find out more. And with every episode, we're going to finish by looking at some of the ways that you at home can play your part in helping to achieve that step. And uh, just as a spoiler, we're not talking about going vegan or flying, although we think those things are very important. We're actually more thinking about the kinds of actions that you can take that go beyond your personal footprint and can help drive that full, large-scale, rapid systemic change that we really desperately need. And so without further ado, let's dive straight into our very first episode, which we're really excited about. We are hopping over to the other side of the ocean, to the city of Los Angeles. Why Los Angeles, you may ask? Well, that's because cities are one of the most important battlegrounds for climate action. And Los Angeles is one of the most impressive cities in the world on that front.
1: Today, me and James are talking to LA's Executive Officer of Sustainability, Victoria Simon, about the incredible work that she's been doing to set the city on its journey to net zero and protect people from the impacts of climate change that are already starting to hit the city.
0: As well as what happens when you get together nearly 100 of the world's megacities in one coalition to take action on climate change. All this and more to come.
1: We wanted to get started with a bit of a topical icebreaker and something which we really like to hear from you is if you could move to one city other than your own and live there for the rest of your life, which city
2: would you choose? I spent probably four or five months total in South Africa and I really just absolutely loved Cape Town. First of all, it's beautiful. The access to nature, both the oceans and the mountains uh, is incredible. And then also the people are just outstanding. I mean, I had so much fun. I learned so much. They're so willing to share their food, their life stories, everything they have to teach you about where they come from, what's important to them. And I so between the food and the nature and the people, I just thought that Cape Town was a really special place.
0: I want some had a Zoom call with somebody in Cape Town. And I remember they had their background, just a oh. beautiful sunset. And at first it seemed, it seemed like that was a Zoom background, but no, it was, it was just just the sky in Cape Town.
2: It's just there every day. <laughs>
0: just there every day. I don't know that I really have such a clear answer. One city that did come to mind was Quito in Ecuador. And what I really liked about there is the fact they have trees just lining the streets but the the trees were all in flower beautiful flowers red and yellow and orange and you get hummingbirds coming down and drinking nectar from the trees right in the middle of the city this huge city in the middle of Ecuador and of course it's also it's sandwiched in the valley in the Andes as well so it's quite pretty in that respect.
1: I was thinking a bit similar but San Jose in Costa Rica, not because of the city particularly, but because I'm obsessed with how Costa Rica has advanced in terms of sustainability. When I went, I wasn't as aware of how much they had done, how much reforestation has taken place, how much money they channel into sustainability. And there are just so many factors which you hear and you think, actually, there are some cities that are already living in the future that we're trying to create. And I guess Los Angeles is becoming one of them. How did that idea start for you and how did you get involved?
2: Sure. I mean, I think you're right in terms of Los Angeles having a a transformation when it comes to sustainability. When I first really got to working on this issue, I was living in New York City and working on New York City's first sustainability plan under uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And to be honest, Los Angeles was not on my radar at all as a place That was um, progressive in that way. It really wasn't until I moved to L.A. um, about 10, 11 years ago and started seeing some of the things that were happening here and the work that former Mayor Garcetti was doing on sustainability when he became mayor he set about setting up the first sustainability office seated within uh, the mayor's office that Los Angeles had ever had. And then we created the first sustainability plan for LA. And one of the really important elements of that plan was not just setting some ambitious goals, but also creating departmental chief sustainability officers, where we put designated people within each of the departments across uh, the city of Los Angeles that were in charge of overseeing different elements of sustainability as it relates to their work. And that, I think, really brought about this cultural shift within city government itself. What are the implications of this policy you're going to implement? What's the implications of this infrastructure that we're going to do? How can we do it better? Can we make it lead? Things like that. You could have one great leader that says all the right things, But unless everybody is really rowing in the same direction, it's not going to make a big change. So that was the first step, I think, that Los Angeles made towards that transformation.
0: That's really interesting. And actually, that makes me think often when we look at, at national governments as well, and you see sometimes environment ministers that are actually quite on it and have a real motivation to get things done, sometimes those efforts can be compromised by a lack of a unified vision across the board. And you can get, you know, the Treasury with policies that don't align with the environmental ambition that the government has, or it might be whoever's in charge of business. Um, So I think that sounds like a really wise strategy to me. Um, And clearly it's working.
1: When um, you're talking about big changes, what do you think about how big of a role cities can play in the path towards sustainability?
2: Yeah, I think that's a... It's a great point because you're thinking like cities, there's so many, they're not that big. Like even if one city went completely carbon neutral, is that going to change the trajectory we're on? Probably not. But when you're thinking about cities as its own body in a way, which is what C40 has done in such a terrific way, creating this peer-to-peer network, with 97 of the world's megacities that are really working together towards a similar objective, I think you see the magnitude that we're we're working on. In terms of impact, cities house more than half of the world's population, and that's only growing. They also produce 70% of the greenhouse gases in the world. In reality, addressing cities and having cities working on this is really paramount if we're going to confront the climate crisis. And I think we saw through C40 that cities, when they come together, they can make a commitment that does have a global impact. At COP26, C40, with Mayor Garcetti as the the chair at the time, were actually able to go before world leaders. He was able to say, we've had 1,049 cities sign up to this race to zero achieving carbon neutrality and that was equivalent to like the fourth or fifth largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world wow. saying they were cut out their carbon emissions. So you can see yes the cities as you know individuals places are small and maybe aren't going to have like a huge impact but cities working together and cities um, implementing innovative ideas and pioneering some of that work and spreading that around does have a really big impact, just like individuals, I would say.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I guess what you need then among that coalition of cities is you need everyone to be trying out a load of different innovative strategies, experimenting um, individually by themselves and then passing that on and transmitting that across different cities.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're seeing in so many cities that they're really like the laboratories for change. National governments, their commitments are the ones that often make the big headlines when you're at a, a UN conference of parties, for instance. But really in in my view, a lot of times the bar that they're setting is a baseline, mm-hmm. something that we should be building off of, especially if it has anything that holds them accountable to it. It's not going to be as ambitious as it needs to be, and that's where um, cities can really build off of those national commitments, but can go way beyond them. You know, they're pushing the boundaries on climate action on so many different elements because they're uh, at the front lines of climate change. Their residents are the ones that are experiencing those impacts directly and demanding action You know, they can go right up to the steps of city hall and into the mayor's office and say, this is what's happening to me. My air quality is terrible. My child has asthma. I demand action now and they can get it. And so I think that's why you're seeing cities do some really innovative and amazing work.
0: And as you mentioned, May Garcetti was um, heading up the C40 previously and I guess that's indicative of the leadership role that Los Angeles is playing on the world stage when it comes to tackling some of these environmental issues. And that's what we thought. Anyway, that's why we invited you on. But for some of our listeners who are less familiar with the work that you're doing, could you explain a bit about what makes Los Angeles a front runner when it comes to climate change? What it is that you're doing that's so ambitious?
2: Sure. I mean, so LA's Green New Deal, which was an update to that first climate uh, plan that I I mentioned earlier, really a lot of it came about because of the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris climate agreement, which was something that was, I think, unfathomable to a lot of people. It was really difficult to hear and, and not representative of what I think a lot of People and cities want the direction we wanted to go. So when LA's Green New Deal was being put together, the call was that it was going to be one of the first cities to have a a sustainability plan that kept to the Paris Climate Agreement. So that's one of the core pieces of it. And the 445 initiatives that are part of that plan are all working towards that goal, So this plan came out and I can report back some of the big things that have taken place include that we are still on track to meeting the Paris Climate Agreement. We've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions 36% from the 1990 baseline. When we put out the plan, there's these five zeros, zero carbon grid, zero carbon buildings, zero waste, zero wasted water, and zero carbon transportation. So those are our five zeros, and a few of them have really excelled beyond even what we had imagined. And so in our plan, the goal was to get 100% clean energy by 2045. And a lot of people said this just isn't possible for second largest city in the United States. It's a very complex system. To actually achieve that. So we we began working with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. They did 100 million simulations of like, what could it possibly look like if we were trying to achieve 100% clean energy grid? And of course, you want it to be like a reliable and affordable and all of those things to make it realistic, uh, something we could do. And after all of that work, it was like three and a half years of work. They came back and said, actually not only would this be achievable, affordable, reliable, but you could do it 10 years faster than your original goal. So we actually moved our goal to 2035 and we are well on our way. Over 60% of our energy is clean energy. So we've really leapt ahead when it comes to our energy grid, which is a huge source of carbon. It's tremendous. there's that. And then when we look at our transportation sector, I mean, Los Angeles is well known for our traffic, known as like the car capital of the world because of how terrible our traffic is but we were able to have voters overwhelmingly vote for the largest public investment in um, public transportation. So we're opening up new public transportation and really building that out in preparation as well for the Olympics that are coming in 2028. Um, And then we also have now built the most publicly available EV chargers in the entire country so we have over 19,000 publicly available ev chargers and really when you look at some of our still crowded highways it almost looks like ev dealership <laughs> there's just so many electric vehicles <laughs> on our streets now and i think a lot of that is due to the availability of charging so transportation and energy i think are two of the areas that we've really leapt ahead and, and shown our leadership
1: Listening to you, there are advancements in transport, infrastructure, equity, sustainability. There's so much progress. And I'm sitting here wondering what barriers you think are standing in the way of politicians stopping them from signing up to C40 when everything seems to be going so well and there's so much progress.
2: (laughs) I think C40 have a lot of requirements to become a member. It's very rigorous. You need to have or be working on um, a plan to reach carbon neutrality. And then you need to not only have this plan, but there is a lot of um, reporting back on how you're doing with implementing the plan. There's also a standard that cities have to achieve to be able to remain a member And they have actually kicked people out of C40 for not um, meeting those requirements. So they're real. And I think that's really great. I think in Los Angeles, we have the benefit of a lot of people really caring a great deal about sustainability and viewing it as an important part of ensuring that your city can thrive going forward. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily true in all cities around the world. And other cities also have priorities when it comes to their economic situation or political situation, to be frank.
0: No, I totally see that. And actually, one of the things that I'm really interested in with your Green New Deal is the intersections between tackling these environmental problems and using them to help solve some of the social problems that you have in the city. You mentioned um, that in the plan, it very much puts frontline communities At very forefront of the plan and and all throughout. Could you uh, give a little more detail on on what that looks like in practice?
2: Yeah, of course, when you uh, were speaking, the first thing that comes to mind is tree equity, because of of redlining, which is really a policy where there was a systematic disinvestment in um, particular communities that were black or brown. And that has had tremendous negative long-standing impact for many of those communities including that many of them do not really have the the trees that you know a community just a few blocks away might have because it's much cheaper to just concrete over everything and not have to water or create space or maintain trees despite the negative impacts of not having trees not only on like mental well-being but also the heat impacts it, it amplifies the herb, urban heat island effect tremendously as well as pollution water runoff there's so many implications for not having that tree equity and you really do see that in Los Angeles and so it was part of LA's green new deal to plant 90,000 trees, but doing so in a very thoughtful way, looking at where are the communities that actually need the trees most. Um, We also have created a thing called Cool Neighborhoods. We're prioritizing those communities that are the most vulnerable to heat, and those are typically in low-income communities of color. And so then we bring in a suite of different um, ways that we're helping to cool those particular communities. Um, trees, of course, being one. But we pioneered what's called cool pavement. And I, I say pioneered, but it's it's kind of logical. You, if you painting your streets black they're gonna be a lot hotter Mm. so we have this it's it is a new technology of a coating that's put on the streets that's it's called cool pavement and it's much lighter in color and that can reduce the heat being absorbed by 25 degrees which is tremendous when you think about it that's incredible yeah 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 And then bus stops that have more shading, trying to help also promote people being able to use public transportation and not being overwhelmed with heat. And then um, cool roofs we are one of the first cities to actually require that new roofs, or if somebody was like fixing their roof, they needed to be a a cool roof if they weren't going to be putting in um, solar. So we have I think the, it's the equivalent of 2,500 football fields worth of cool roofs all across Los Angeles, um, which also helps keep people's homes cooler. If they have an air conditioning, reducing that air conditioning use, and if they don't, also helping people who don't have air conditioning.
0: It's almost like you're creating a little Arctic ice cap in the middle of the city uh, to help cool it down, all that albedo.
1: Can I ask beyond the policymaking, you're trying to integrate communities' voices and you touched on the need for kind of a reciprocal bottom up and also trickle down action. Um, How are communities getting involved? Could you outline how in practice it's happening?
2: We set up the first in the nation climate emergency mobilization office. One of their chief um, functions is to really work with communities to make sure that we're having their voices brought into our decision making. It can't really be from within City Hall deciding, okay, these are the priority actions. This is what we think is important for this community. It really cannot be the way that we go about actually implementing a sustainable future. We need to hear directly from the communities. We have indigenous community members. We have youth members, the black and brown community, environmental groups. And then looking across Los Angeles, like people representing different geographic areas, because, of course, there's also different priorities when you think about that. A lot of these communities have their own community-based organizations that are doing tremendous work, and overlooking that is really foolish. And so really hearing from those communities, what are your priorities? How are you addressing it now? What would you like to see And integrating that into our decision-making process. It's been a really important endeavor, I think, to not be in our silos working on this alone.
0: That's really good to hear. Um, But it it ties in as well to the idea of you're not only looking at mitigation, but you're also looking at helping to increase the resilience of the city. You're helping trying to adapt to the impacts of climate change as well, right? Does that feature very heavily in your plan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. You'd be foolish not to look around and see already what's happening today in Los Angeles. Wildfires that make sometimes our sky look eerie uh, and and rain ash. My kids can't go to school some days because the air quality is so bad. And it literally looks like it's snowing Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, but it's ash from the fires. And then droughts. We were experiencing what's considered a mega drought due to the length and, and historic proportions. And then looking as well at heat. Just this past summer, our our energy grid in California almost completely broke because of the heat that the state was undergoing. And so building that infrastructure when it comes to stormwater capture system, our soccer fields, many of them underneath hold huge uh, basins of water for when it does rain, um, transforming the largest water reclamation plants west of the Mississippi. We're transforming it into what's going to be one of the world's largest water recycling plants so that we can really reuse the water that we already have. And we're also doing so much work when it comes to looking at building more resilience into our energy grid, because of course, our entire economy relies on it and thinking about how we will withstand some of these heat or other weather related events, we are actually able to provide energy back into the grid and support California during that tremendous heat wave because of some of the work that we've been doing on strengthening our resilience. Yeah, it's an important element. And I think there's been more and more attention put on it. And we're going about doing a climate vulnerability assessment to really look more granularly at how the um, vulnerability varies across communities as well. Because it does um, vary for each different community, depending not only where they are, but also what kind of infrastructure they have, like trees.
1: It's so good to hear you talking about resilience in the future, because I think that so many solutions don't factor in resilience and the infrastructure needed for that. But resilience is thrown around, as lots of words are in the sustainability sector. Um, But in practice, if you were to choose a model or a pathway towards resilience, what does that look like? For example, the circular economy following natural cycles rather than this linear economy. And that's one way to strengthen resilience.
2: Yeah, I think one effort that We've been doing because of the earthquakes that Los Angeles already regularly uh, experiences. We call it Ryland. It's Ready Your Los Angeles. And it's really looking at how do you build resilience from the individual and the neighborhood out? So how do you plan as an individual, as a family, and work with your community to create those connections before something happens. And that can apply to anything, whether it's a power outage and, oh, you need batteries for your flashlight to something much bigger, like some of the earthquakes that we've experienced or flooding or even COVID-19, where you're really relying on your closest neighbors to help support you during difficult time. So I think that there's a community element of creating resilience that is I think an important one because it doesn't have to be just related to climate change, it, but it can apply to so many different elements of building a more resilient city.
0: So that's really interesting to hear and it reminds me, I don't know what the truth of this is, but when we're looking at some of the moments in history when things have got really difficult within living memory when we're thinking about the world wars for example, People I know to have lived through them look back on those times as times when under immensely difficult and painful circumstances, communities have come together in the way that they weren't put together before. And I worry that um, in the modern world, when communities don't seem to have, in general, I think quite the same level of cohesion, maybe because we spend so much time connecting with people on our phones and, and virtually, that less happens writing in your local community. But I think that sounds like a really sensible strategy and something that must just improve people's qualities of life anyway. Just changing tech very slightly, because we're talking about resilience, but there's the other aspect to resilience as well, as well as the physical resilience. It's the resilience of of the movement through time and the momentum that you're building. While we've seen at at the national level, the US government has been quite susceptible to changes in governance and that's had a huge impact um, on the policies that it puts out on the and on the level of leadership it exhibits at the global stage. Is it exactly the same with cities? Is it the case that if you'd have someone elected um, for the next term who is less ambitious that all of this progress that you've made could be stalled or is it the case now that you hope something has been started that will just keep going?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I'm sure it, it varies by city, but I think that the a lot of the work that we spoke about earlier in terms of institutionalizing sustainability within city government, I think has been really important to continuing the work no matter what, no matter who the mayor is, no matter how important They think um, addressing climate change is, I think it's also been very critical that Angelenos themselves care deeply about this issue. And you have young people who are out there demanding change very loudly. And I think that's really important because it really holds our elected leaders accountable for some of the, the things that have been said, some of the plans that have been put out. And then you have the institutionalization of that work And I think all of those really come together to help bridge some of those transitions that do occur. And also, Mayor Bass, who is our our new mayor, um, her climate plans um, are very ambitious and and mirror a lot of the the work that's been going on. So I'm very hopeful that it's going to continue. And in Los Angeles, we're very proud of our leadership. I think that we'll only want to continue that mantle and, and keep pushing the boundaries.
1: Talking about boundaries. Do you think that this is extending a lot beyond the boundaries of wealthy cities, I would say? I mean, Los Angeles, there are boundaries to change. Um, There are boundaries to progress. But some countries and some cities haven't even had the ability to start thinking about this progress in the way that Los Angeles does. So what's the global picture looking like?
2: Yeah, it was really wonderful to see that at COP27, the focus... Had shifted more towards. What about countries who are not only experiencing some of the worst impacts of climate change, but also don't have the the funding and resources to be able to adequately address it? And this is fundamentally unfair. And I think you see with C40 as well that there is a lot of attention on the global south. How do we not only bring them into the fold in terms of like learning and engagement, but also how do we really support them in the efforts that they're aiming for. So trying to look at how does sustainability also dovetail well with some of the work that um, they're doing to help build up their own community, feeding them jobs, um, even just providing electricity, how can that be done in in a sustainable way that's actually maybe not necessarily more expensive. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you're right in terms of it is a real challenge. It's hard for Los Angeles, but it's hard for us. It's even harder for cities that don't necessarily have the funding or the bandwidth to be able to focus on some of these issues.
0: I'm aware that time is running out. You've been very generous with your time, but we have one last question that we try to ask of all our guests to wrap up each show. And that is if there's one thing that you would like to see individuals do that you'd like to see Businesses do, and that you'd like to see governments do to help push forward this change that we so desperately need. What would you ask of each of them?
2: I think when it comes to government, I would love to see not only the ribbon cuttings and the announcements, but spending even more time on the actual implementation and accountability for what happens after. It can be challenging, I think, for politicians in particular, because of the cycle of getting elected, it takes a long time for some of these projects to come to fruition. And so thinking about maybe your legacy of what you're laying the groundwork for, as being just as important as that that ribbon cutting or announcement for businesses, I think really, in some ways, similar, they often have their own climate plans, I think a lot of them aren't as ambitious as they should be. And then you don't necessarily hear much about how they're actually doing with the implementation of it. And also thinking about where does that fit into the communities where they reside, whether it's their headquarters or if they have smaller franchises, what does that look like for those communities? Um, And how does that plan work in those communities? And for individuals, boy, there's just so many ways that people could lean in. I get so many questions from friends. What can I do? And There's a lot that you can do to be part of it. And I think it can be very daunting or depressing even to think about. But I guess I I really hope that people can view themselves as being part of the change that we need, whether that comes from what you drive, what kind of food you're eating. There's so many small changes that you can make, but also how are you voting people care deeply in their top three things that they care about the environment, but they're not really voting on it. And I think that people should be factoring that in more strongly when it comes to making those decisions.
1: Could I just tack on one question to the end? Because I think you have something which lots of people don't at the moment, which is an incredible amount of hope for the future. And lots of talk about where we're going to be in 2050 and Almost everything that you've said is positive. And I want to know, you know, you're waking up to do this every day. What is it that's motivating you to do this? And what is it that's allowing you to feel so hopeful about the future when so many others aren't?
2: Yeah, I mean, I will be honest. There are times where I'm like, oh, this is bad. (laughs) Especially when those IPCC reports come out and you're like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah,
1: Um, it's only human, isn't it?
2: (laughs) But I would say I don't really feel like I have a choice. this is the only option is to work as hard as I possibly can and um, give it everything that I can because I want to be able to tell my children that I work for them and that the future that they have is something hopefully better because of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm optimistic because I'm not alone In working that hard, I'm working with lots of young people that are doing it I'm working with people that are older than me that are also narrowly focused on this is what we need to do. And so I'm excited to be able to come to work every day for that larger mission. But it's not easy. It isn't.
0: I I think I speak for both of us when when I say that your optimism gives us optimism and that we're really grateful for all of the work that you're doing and, and the leadership you're showing it's making a huge difference already. Mm -hmm. And we're really looking forward to seeing what you get up to in the next few years.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really
1: wonderful. I definitely feel optimistic after hearing what Victoria has done, how she's been part of the change in Los Angeles, and then scaling that up to a global, more systemic change. For you, James, what was your biggest takeaway, positive takeaway, let's say?
0: Ooh, biggest positive takeaway. That's a tricky one. I think one of the most positive things I took away from that was the fact that you can start immediately to drive more positive change, not only through the direct decisions that you make as an administration, but actually by making behind the scenes institutional changes to the way that you make those decisions. Victoria um, put a lot of emphasis on embedding sustainability across all the different departments in the Los Angeles city government.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's something that that you can probably take away and apply to a lot of different places. Like I know Patagonia, they did something very similar where they originally had a, a centralized sustainability department, and then they decided to split it up and move sustainability people into each of their other departments.
1: Yeah, I find that really interesting. And I bring it up a lot, but I know in Costa Rica, because the environment is the cornerstone of everything they do, they put eco at the heart of the government. So every policy had to be made, taking environmental principles into account, which I think is so important. And once again, the really interesting part of what Victoria said was how multidimensional changes and how, you know, we could start at the top, we could start at the bottom. But she really emphasized finding that seed of change within a community, then growing that out to a city and then expanding that to C40. And it's interesting because I've definitely seen this binary systemic versus individual change. And I love what she talks about, which is that we don't have to choose one. We can choose all of them together and actually have a massive impact doing that.
0: Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think the last concluding thought from me was the idea of centering equity in the decision-making process. The climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis often disproportionately impact the most vulnerable and the poorest people in our society. But also, unfortunately, I think it's fair to say that environmental policies can often do the same, both from the perspective of putting forward policies that are compassionate and that help to level some of the inequity in society, but also just from the perspective of actually getting these policies put through it's really important that we think about equity more in decision-making when it comes to the environment.
1: But often we talk about sacrifices in environmentalism and it's really exciting that from what Victoria says, we could be living in areas which are a lot more sustainable, which are a lot better for people's well-being. Um, There's more social cohesion and I think it's really exciting to say this isn't just about sacrifice, this is about something better and moving towards a better future within cities. Um, And I think cities will be the forefront of change and the hub of sustainability as we go forward.
0: Victoria also did a good job of sharing with us what she thought was a really important way that individual people could make a change, which is through their voting decisions. And I think that is a really important thing to emphasise. If more people were to align their voting with their environmental values that would make a huge, huge difference. So that's really important. But I think we wanted to expand a little bit on this, on how individual people can make a change at the city level. So did you have any ideas about this, Bella, about what people could do?
1: Yeah, I think something that we have in cities which we shouldn't overlook is incredible physical accessibility. You can engage with city governments and councillors, whether it's through emails or organising face-to-face meetings, which I think most of them... Should be happy to do. And in my case, I've had all sorts of weird requests to MPs over the years. And often you do get back good responses, especially if they're in a city that you're in um, and you directly ask for a meeting. So I would say that's the first thing. Do you have any, James?
0: Yeah, well, I think that is important as a first step. I also think that more broadly, you can do a really good job of getting city leaders the mandate um, for change or pressure them to make a change that they're not immediately willing to do through broader protest and and changing the political discourse. One campaign that I thought I really wanted to share with you is one called Choked Up from our own city in London. It was started in 2020 by some black and brown sixth form students, and they were really angry about how air pollution was disproportionately impacting the health of black and brown communities and those communities that are on lower incomes. And so what they decided to do was they decided to put up hacked road signs in different pollution hotspots around the city. And so these road signs, they look like normal road signs, but they've got messages warning about air pollution and about its disproportionate impacts on different groups of people. And that got a lot of national press and it helped to make pollution actually a really key issue in the London mayoral elections. They had a a clean air hustings for all the candidates and they had several follow-up meetings with those candidates that were due to become London Mayor. So I think that's a really fantastic example of how just a small group of ordinary people can actually really influence the public discourse and help to put key environmental issues on the agenda of politicians.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. One last idea I wanted to throw in, which we touched on earlier, is the idea of innovation And I think as people who are going to be organising these protests and these meetings within cities, we can use those bits of innovation and those solutions that are being proposed as our points of focus or points of leverage to say, look what we have available to us. We have these solutions available to us. Why aren't you using them? Um, A community organisation could use those solutions and scale them up into initiatives, use them as a proof. That there are alternative paths and governments can no longer use the excuse of we're doing what we can until there's a better alternative because there are better alternatives and they need to be pursued and implemented. I think that's a lot for people to take away, more than a bite-sized chunk of solutions. Uh, do you have anything else james
0: no i think that's it from me i think that's about all that we have time for um so thank you so much everyone for joining us on this first episode if you've enjoyed it we'd really appreciate you sharing it and leaving us a review and that way more people can find out about our podcast and hear what we have to say Uh, and if you'd like to support us further you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com We've got links to this and our social media all in the show notes, so check that out.
1: Next time we have someone really exciting on the show. On the 27th of September, one of the biggest climate cases ever to have happened is going to be heard in the European Court of Human Rights. There will be six young people from Portugal bringing 33 countries to court. So James and I are going to be speaking to one of the lawyers on that case, finding out all about it, exploring why they've done it and what's going to happen next. So thank you for listening to our first ever episode and see you next week. Bye. Bye.